0: this week's Christian Humanist podcast. I'm David Grubbs. I'll be your host this week. I'm a professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas in McPherson, Kansas. With me this week is Nathan Gilmore, Associate Professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you this week, Nathan?
2: I I am tired. This week after spring break has just been going very, very quickly, and I haven't had a chance to slow down. So if I'm a little bit out of sorts today, that is why
0: but but spring break was supposed to help you get rested yeah. right
2: <laughs> and That's the week after spring break helped me to get tired <laughs>
0: <laughs> well dear listeners i am i am on the uh, uh, the the thursday of my spring break it has trotted by pretty quickly so i'm i guess i'm looking forward to your week this week next week for me if that makes sense mhm Anywhos, uh if you've noted, uh, dear listeners, or if you listened to the end of the previous podcast, uh, there are only two voices on this one. This is a, a decimal episode, uh, 156.1. Um, Michael is not here. He's on a boat.
2: Right, right. <laughs> and, and Nathan is still re- re- regretting that 2009 decision that seemed so wise at the moment to do the decimal thing. Because now, <laughs> when people ask me how many episodes we've recorded, I say, more than 150. <laughs> well, more than 156,
0: yes. Yes, yes. I... <laughs> well, we, we are on a decimal episode today, dear listener, and uh, because Michael is on a boat, we can do what we like, and uh, since I was at the helm at the la- in the last decimal episode, I took us in the Old English Poetry Direction. Um, I thought it'd be fun to do that again. Um, not least of which because, uh, the last decimal episode resulted into, in some, uh, some interesting conversations with, uh, with listeners on, you know, kind of unofficial channels, um, including our press liaison, Kristen Philippic. And one of the things that we discussed was dream of the rude. And I thought, Hey, let's go back to that. Well, so this morning uh we'll be talking about the Old English poem uh The Dream of the Rood. We're not going to read it for you. Uh it's long.
2: <laughs> right, what is it about 150-160 lines?
0: Something like that. Okay. Uh so I guess probably the best thing to do would be first of all if if you want to pause now and find a translation and read it for yourself. Uh, what translation would we refer them to, Nathan?
2: Uh, Well, hopefully this will be in the show notes, and I'm probably going to put it on the Facebook page as well. But the one that I am using is www.dreamofrude.co.uk. If you do a Google search for Dream of the Rude, it'll be the maybe third or fourth link.
0: Okay. Um, I'm using the uh, Everyman Anglo-Saxon Poetry Anthology entitled Anglo-Saxon Poetry, <laughs> uh, translated by S.A.J. Bradley. It's a pretty good one. Um, I can also recommend Kevin Crossley Holland's The Anglo-Saxon World, which has another really nice uh, translation of The Dream of the Rood* in it. So so there you go. Some texts if you want to pause right now and track it down and read it before letting us go further. But uh, let's talk about our source text. Um, where do we get Dream of the Rood*?
2: Well, off of a big hunk of rock is the short answer. Uh, you know, <laughs> th- there is a monument, um, and I never can remember, David. Is it in northern England or in Scotland itself? Um, or was it found in?
0: <laughs> I guess I, I should clarify that. Yes, it is. It is. It, it. The the ancient cross, the Ruthwell Cross, I believe you mean, mm-hmm. um, was erected in a portion of the united kingdom that once had anglo-saxons in it
3: right okay okay (laughs) very
2: good very good okay so in other words i mean the fact that that my memory is blurry on this is because it is a blurry memory (laughs) 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 Uh, but this this is one of the relatively rare artifacts that we find where we have uh english poetic text inscribed in stone Um, it's one of those things that as David noted, you know, appears on the uh, northern island of Albion, uh, (laughs) and also exists in a few manuscript forms here and there. Uh, Interestingly enough, it seems to have traveled fairly well. Some of the manuscripts are discovered in continental libraries, not just British ones. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it seems to have been one of the early efforts of Christian missionaries to provide the people uh, of English-speaking Britain or England uh, with basically an alternative story to their own heroic stories this is decidedly the heroic tale of the christ uh as we'll discuss later and it 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 seems the ruthwell cross i mean uh, seems to have been a, a direct competitor to the heroic tales of you know the gods and heroes of the old english so uh David, I, and and this is another one that I, I I'm fuzzy on. It's been a while. Um, what what does scholarship generally think about the relative ages of the cross itself and then the manuscripts that are extant?
0: Generally, the cross is considered to be older. Okay. Um the 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 older of the two. Hmm. Um which I, I I've I've tracked that down the, the uh, dear listeners the reasons why uh, we we sort of fumbled the uh the previous where on earth is the Ruthwell cross cross question is because generally when I read stuff it just says Northumbrian <laughs> right <laughs> anyway anyway so some of Northumbria is now northern England some of Northumbria is now Scotland yeah um, apparently yeah. the Ruthwell cross was in is is, is now in in a a a region that is Scotland, not England. Okay, but, okay,
2: okay. So the museum yes. is in Scotland, but the cross <laughs> itself was found in Northumbria. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, Northumbrian cross. Um, the date of the poem itself, uh, from from what I've heard, tends to be tenth century. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can we can talk about putative authorship. Um, but I did want to point at the uh, uh, one of those manuscripts that you talk about um, that was found on the continent, namely the the Virchilli book, mm-hmm. um, is is one of the uh, one of the few big anthologies of Anglo-Saxon poetry that have that have remained to the present day. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's a big, uh, a big book found in Italy. Thus the name Vercelli, um, mm-hmm. doesn't sound super Anglo-Saxon cause it isn't. Um, <laughs> but it has Anglo-Saxon
2: poetry in it.
0: Yes. The as, Vercelli uh, book.
2: <laughs> as well as some great <laughs> pasta re- recipes.
0: Yes. Yes. Vercelli with a nice, you know, <laughs> a, good, a, a, a nice sausage based meat sauce. <laughs> um, uh but it's got some pretty famous ones Andreas which is uh, a, a an apocryphal story about Saint Andrew and his adventures um whilst evangelizing various savage peoples the fates of the apostles soul and body uh dream of the rude and elena
1: mm-hmm.
0: or um, well we may say a little bit about elena later uh do we know anything about an author
2: well, we know that people have speculated about the author, and if we don't know for sure who the author of an Anglo-Saxon text is, uh, Cadman always comes up.
1: <laughs>
2: and so, yeah. you know, people have speculated that this might be a poem of Cadman. Uh, people have also speculated that it might be a poem of Kennewolf or Chennewolf, depending on the pronunciation. Um, yeah. from, from what I remember reading around uh, back when I was teaching this last a year ago, um, you know, there's not a whole lot of agreement on, you know, how seriously we should take those attributions.
0: Right. Well, one of the reasons why, uh, Kuna Wolf tends to be, uh, pointed out is that some of the poems preceding Dream of the Rood in the Vercelli book are Kuna Wolf poems, mm-hmm. um, Andreas and, uh, Fates of the Apostles, um, and, and we know this, listeners, because Kunewolf, uh liked to sign his work um, with riddles. Uh, he would include little little rune riddles at the ends of the poems. That if you decode the riddle, uh, what you've done is discovered the runes that spell his name.
3: Right, right.
0: Which is kind of kind of neat, and I'm surprised Dan Brown hasn't latched onto it. <laughs> uh, it just seems like his kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know? Ancient codes in Anglo-Saxon poetry. So we don't know. Uh, we don't know author. Uh, we do have some source texts. Um, we've got a couple, couple of names that we could suggest, but um, there is no riddle rune signature to Dream of the Rood. So that's sad.
2: Right. Right. So you know, just to sum up, I mean, what David so nicely articulated there. It's in the same book with poems that are almost certainly Kennewolf, uh, yeah. but the this poem might be a Kennewolf that he just didn't sign, or it might be a poem that was copied into this book alongside the almost certainly Kennewolf poems.
0: Right. Who knows? Because books, uh, early medieval books and later medieval books, were... Uh, were basically assembled uh, according to the desires of the person who who wanted the book made, right. so.
2: And that's you know that's one of the things that I I remember well learning from uh, Andrew Cole at University of Georgia that, you know for instance what we think of as Chaucer's poetry, um, mm-hmm. didn't appear in books of poetry you know it would be an appendix to a hymn book it would be, you know the mass liturgy and then also the Miller's Tale. Uh, which, you know, <laughs> which which melts my noodle. I won't lie, but you know, um, it, it's one of those things where you know the the modern conception that you know there are poetry books that you keep on this shelf in Barnes and Noble, and then there are religious books you keep over in that section in Barnes and Noble wasn't so much a uh, concern of the English in the Middle Ages.
0: Nope, nope. It was all about what the needs were of the person who ordered the book because mm-hmm. they were being made one at a time. Right. So, enough about medieval books. Let's talk about Dream of the Rude. Um, I guess we should say a little bit about uh, the genre before we get into a discussion of the content. What would you call this poem? It's odd.
2: <laughs> I, it, it certainly is that. I mean, it is, I, I would say it is a mix of a, a dream vision and then a hagiography, uh, mm-hmm. but both of them are a little bit weird because um the dream vision is is one in which you know the main character speaking is not you know the spirit of the departed as it often is in dream vision poems and it's not an angelic figure but it actually is uh the cross on which christ hanged uh Mm -hmm. so you know it's a it is a personified object uh that that and we'll talk about this more in depth a little bit later but you know claims a very special place uh in the course of the world and the impression that the poem gives i think uh is that you know the cross was already no ordinary tree even before jesus came into the picture mm-hmm. so it's one of those things where you know i mean we'll talk about the theology of it here in a little while but um that the, the the cross becomes a a i can't say superhuman so a a super arboreal figure <laughs> Uh, (laughs) uh, in this poem but then also at the end I mean you know like I said the cross becomes a saint figure uh, that actually you know in its own speech parallels itself to the holy virgin and the apostles and so on and so forth the cross is a part of the story and a saint you know to whom one can direct devotion just Mm. as readily as one can direct devotion to the and again, the, one's vocabulary breaks down when one talks about this poem <laughs> alongside <laughs> the human saints of the Christian church. So uh, it, it, it's definitely one of those that, you know, if you if you think of medieval poetry as, you know, fairly simple-minded and, you know, it doesn't do a whole lot to transgress conventional categorical boundaries, um, this poem, along with many others, by the way, will melt your brain a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> David, I mean, you know, are, are there any jo- other genres to roll in there? Because I mean, th- this is definitely a poem that is hard to say. Okay, let's put it in this bin, but not this bin.
0: Mm-hmm. Two, um, two other points of connection in terms of Anglo-Saxon lit, and and yeah, it's the, the dream the dream element is there, but it's you're right, it's so strange. It, it looks like hagiography, hey, but it's it's an object bearing witness to itself. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it's, it's extraordinarily unique. Um,
2: and somewhere Matt Lewis's head just exploded.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. Matt Lewis. The dream of the rude is very unique. <laughs> Boom. Um, yeah, yeah, that was in it. That was inadvertent. Uh, well, I, one, I, I think I, 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 I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm the only one. Um, who's who's noted this but um i see a connection between this and the story of cadman Mm -hmm. the idea that as he's as cadman sleeps he is approached by this heavenly figure who then evokes song from him there seems to be some kind of similar dream visitation by you know a holy visitant who then gives the uh gives the, the the speaker of the poem um a message to bear in some mm-hmm. sense um this you know the, in the same way that cadman was commissioned by some man to sing creation and then have go on to have this long poetic career of you know digesting um bible into old english verse um so to the, the the unnamed narrator um presumably a monk of dream of the Rood has been commissioned by the cross itself to bear witness to the cross.
3: Right. Right.
0: Um, the other one is, uh, I, I know I've read stuff on this, uh, compares the dream of the Rood to the Anglo-Saxon riddles.
2: Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. In which, uh, it's, it's pretty typical for an Anglo-Saxon riddle to have some object, um, speak as a character and describe itself in personal terms Mm -hmm. um so that it, it it will it will sort of describe its its career you know i was the strength of a of you know a beast of the field but i was taken off and now you know warriors kiss me and use me to call others to battle and you're like oh it's a horn
3: right right
0: um there's, there, there seems to be um, some similar things going on in the Rude, Dream of the Rude, though there's no mystery about what the Rude is, though there is some kind of mystery at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But, but the the Dream of the Rude speaks like an object in a riddle. There's a, there's a mystery element here that's, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, what notable literary features should we point out so that we don't sound like crazy people? once we start talking about the poem (laughs)
2: uh well first of all i mean this is uh old english verse so it does follow the convention of the alliterated half lines um Mm -hmm. once again i i i really should have done the research on the manuscript but i mean just looking at a few images of the Vercelli book manuscript i mean it seems once again that the half lines are something that people would have heard rather than seen. again Writing media are very expensive in the Middle Ages, so they're trying to conserve space uh, but when it's laid out you know in a modern textbook when we've got readily available uh, paper, uh, you can see that you know the consonant s alliterates in the first line, and let's see here ah an m in the second and <laughs> R in the third and so on and so forth. Boy, I thought I could do that faster than that, but <laughs> uh, what you get is. On a line level, you have the alliteration rather than rhyme or meter, as we talked about before. And as with other uh, Anglo-Saxon poetry, the real genius of it uh, is the kenning. Uh, it is the combination of concepts in, con- in compound words. Ooh, I just alliterated. Uh, you know, that gives you <laughs> these wonderful, uh, oftentimes, uh hop-ox legomena, uh, which is a technical term from, you know, literary study that means a word that only occurs once. But they are words that are formed from other words and instead of using chains of helping verbs as, you know, modern English tends to do, they are simply driven together. So, mm-hmm. David pick out a couple cuz I for some reason my brain isn't working this morning.
0: Well, one um uh it, it's it's definitely a compound um it's it's one of the descriptions of christ uh as he approaches the cross Christ is steve mode um mm, yeah yeah it basically means you know brave or resolute says you know says the uh uh the the lexicon here but steve mode it's 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 the word mode mind and Steve which uh i think is connected to standing mm-hmm but it, it, yeah, it has it has this notion of of a, of a firmly set, a firmly placed, um, unshakably, you know, s- uh, an unshakable stance of mood. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, exactly, <laughs> you know, exactly.
0: Which uh, which is which is just lovely, a, a, you know, a, a lovely way to, to talk about, uh, to talk about Christ as he, as he, uh, approaches the cross and, and anyone, you know, especially if you've read, you know, like the gospel of Mark, um, there becomes a point at which Jesus begins to head to Jerusalem and he starts telling his disciples, this is what I'm going to do. And it's this, this implacability, mm-hmm. um, uh, this this implacable progress towards the end that you see um, in the gospels and you know in in old English apparently you say that as steed mode
3: right
2: right <laughs> and later on in the poem now that i now that I can actually see again uh you know we, we get uh you know God the father ref- referred to as heach Fadra, the high mm. father uh, we get you know the well, I mean, it, it, it functions as the object of a preposition adverbially, but, you know, he's saying that, you know, something happens as he progresses to the place. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, you hear that, listeners, you hear that string of helping words I just had to use. In Old English, it's simply two words because of that kenning. It's on fourth way, uh, on mm-hmm. the fourth way. <laughs> so once again, I mean, it's a it it really is something that, you know, if you study some comparative poetry, some Arab poetry and some greek and latin poetry and certainly some modern english poetry uh the true genius of it of the old english verse form uh is you know this this power of combination uh -hmm. this ability to create complex concepts with very few syllables
0: yeah and springing off of that another one of the notable literary uh what, what I would consider a notable literary feature here is combinations not only of words but also combinations of images. Mm-hmm. Um, this this poet is is a master of uh, a very kind of cinematic description um, that ben, ben, frankly bends the limits of of language and uh, and even of of uh, of the senses in order to describe what's going on here um there's a moment in the poem where the uh fairly early on where the speaker sees this gem uh, sees this uh this golden cross stretched across the sky mm. um but he sees it change um he says i was afraid in the presence of that beautiful sight i saw that noble beacon change its coverings and color Sometimes it was drenched with moisture, soaked with the flow of blood, sometimes adorned with treasure. So as he's looking at this golden cross in the sky, it's morphing into um, a bloody crucifix with, you know, all of the all of the signs of, of a recent crucifixion still upon it. And it shifts back and forth between the two. Right. And it, now, we're familiar with this from from film. We're we're used to that kind of you know one scene fading into another, Mm -hmm. but it didn't have those in Anglo-Saxon England. (laughs) He's he's imagining something that no one can see, right? (laughs) Which which to me makes it all the more um, amazing when it's there. You can you could gloss right over that, but just you know when you read this poem, keep in mind, you know this guy hasn't seen the Lord of the Rings, he doesn't know about living trees (laughs) so much, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't seen that depicted. He hasn't seen this kind of morphing of image. He's, he's making it as he, you know, as, as, as he writes out this, this, uh, this dream, which I don't know whether or not someone actually had this dream or whether that's, you know, a, a, a poetic premise um, I don't. I don't know that it's important to say one way or the
2: other. Right, right. Yeah, honestly, I never gave that any thought. I just, okay, it's a dream poem. Let's <laughs> you know, <laughs> roll yeah, on, yeah. man.
0: <laughs> yeah, just just know that dream poems are enough of a of a classical and especially medieval trope that we needn't actually think that anyone had this as as an actual religious vision. Um, and that's not necessarily a disrespectful thing to say. We're not, you know, we're we're not doubting the testimony of you know some old English saint when we do that. Um, we're just saying this this poem fits within um, an identifiable ancient and medieval poetic genre, and so there's no reason to suppose that it's pretending to be more than that.
3: Right. Right.
0: Well. Um, do we want to summarize this real quickly before we nug into the the, uh, the theology, so to speak?
2: Um, I mean, you know, I, I think of this as sort of a. Honestly, a parallel, you know, and it's interesting, you know, you pointed to um, Cadman's narrative. Uh, mm-hmm. I think of it as a sort of, you know, parallel to the biblical apocalypse because. uh Uh, it's one of those things where you know as you said the visions of things shift right so in revelation you know one of the patterns that you see over and over is that a speaker will tell john the seer behold you will see this and then he turns and narrates that he actually sees that right so uh behold the lion of judah who has come to you know inherit the world, and I'm I'm probably getting that wrong, and he looks and he sees a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You know, the Mm -hmm. voice tells him, look, there are carefully enumerated and tightly limited numbers of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. These are all who will be saved. And he turns and he looks and he sees people beyond number from every nation and tongue and tribe, right? Uh, Right. So it's one of those things where uh, here... The first thing that you know, our, our poet says is that he sees some he, or it occurs to him that he sees something like a tree. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, very, very biblical, very self-consciously biblical construction there, I think, and that's really the first movement of the poem, if you will. It's this vision of the cross, as David uh, already noted, it's a cross that is not static in its appearance. Uh, sometimes it appears like the ancient of days from the beginning of Revelation. Sometimes it appears like the lamb that was slain from the middle of Revelation, Uh, Mm -hmm. but it is a glorious vision and something that is obviously uh, a divine revelation as well as a dream. The second movement of the poem, uh, the cross itself narrates its own part in the salvation of the world, Uh, namely that it was basically brave enough to remain standing uh, when Christ was crucified, and we'll talk about the options that seem to be open to the cross a little bit later, because, <laughs> boy, does that get trippy. Uh, and then, you know, the the poem finishes out with the poetic narrator, the persona, uh, saying that, you know, he longs for the time when Christ returns, when the kingdom is brought into its fullness. And here's why, because then it will be able to go and to join the cross in heaven. So it's one of those things where, you know, the... Uh, If you are, like me by the way, you know, a person who thinks that, you know, the cross is something that is overcome in the resurrection, and that part of the point of the kingdom of God is that there's not crosses to crucify people anymore, uh, this is a very different vision, because, (laughs) you know, even the cross is transformed, and even the cross becomes a saint that the poet looks forward to joining in the kingdom of heaven in its consummation, so... David, I I ran over that real fast. I mean, are there any other big points that you'd want to point up?
0: Um, Some have suggested that there's a hole in in the story between the... uh, uh, The cross is described as being hewn down and buried and then later found. And uh, one of the additions... Uh, One of the translations that I looked at had a note that that suggested that maybe something was lost, that maybe there had been some more extended account of how the Holy Cross had been found by uh, St. Helen, Mother of Constantine, and turned into a relic. Okay. Uh Um, But I've read just as many things that said that, you know, no, it looks as if this is pretty complete, and, and the poet thinks that the illusion can stand without being unpacked. So... I mean, it is in, you know, <laughs> Dream of the Root is in the Vercelli book, you know, before Elena. So, you know, just keep reading.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That does make
0: sense. <laughs> but yeah, it just, there, there's a uh, little illusions like that. Um, and, and also I, I, I love the fact that you brought in the apocalyptic because there's definitely, um, an apocalyptic feel to the very end of the poem, um, which we'll, we'll we will get to, mm. um but it's uh, i i think it's uh lovely how the uh ha- how the, how the poet managed to to basically span you know from one end of the canonical new testament to the other yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> with this one image well let's get into the theology and into that those weird options the tree has yeah um, Yeah, one of the most interesting things about this poem is the relationship that the creation has to its maker, and uh, in particular that this tree has to its maker. So Mm -hmm. what is odd, interesting, super neat, (laughs) or typical that you see here?
2: Right. Well, first of all, you know, the, uh, the tree narrates its own career, like I said, you know, not necessarily from the crucifixion forward, but from before that. Um, he says that you know, and the the translation I'm looking at says strong enemies, uh, and that's fair. That's fairly you know strong, failed str- us you know strong fiends, uh, mm-hmm. cut him down at the edge of the wood. And carried him, you know, so that they could execute their enemies, uh, and then you know what's what's. So far, so good. Okay, it's a talking tree. We're in a dream vision. That's fine. Uh, But then, you know, they set set the tree on a hill, uh, and then the the tree sees the Lord of humankind uh, coming towards it, not being led as a prisoner, but actually coming of his own accord, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Because he wants to get up on the cross. And what's even weirder, uh, just in case that wasn't enough, Uh, The tree here takes a side note and says, you know, being a dutiful cross and knowing my role in everything, so apparently the cross knows more than the Roman soldiers do, um, he decides to stand strong even though he had the power to destroy all the enemies of the Lord. So, you know, David's earlier reference to Ents might not be too far off target (laughs) because this cross says, you know, I could have taken them, but Jesus didn't want me to, so I just stood there. David, take it from there, because I don't want to take up all the good bits.
0: <laughs> well, I, I I love I love the idea that you know that the the cross as this you know and, and you've got this Anglo-Saxon poet seeing what I imagine was a fairly you know typical crucifix, but he sees those cro- the crossbar as 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 arms, and so he can just imagine this cross just kind of leaning down and smacking people with its giant railroad timber timber fists, you know. <laughs> it's like it's like Groot or something. Yeah. <laughs> um I am rude. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> which is which is awesome. Um because in and and you're right, what the tree is doing, what the root is doing is relating itself to the one on the cross as a um uh, as a servitor, as a liegeman, as a, mm-hmm. as a, you know, sworn member of his war band, right? Yeah. It's a very old English, very Anglo-Saxon idea mm-hmm. that there's a relationship between the Lord and those who are sworn to this Lord's service. Right. And one of those things is standing in his defense, mm-hmm. but even more than that, following his orders. And so here you have the creation in the In this tree um being uh an aware being that knows its Lord is here and sees you know sees that it has it has options that accord with these anglo saxon ideas of duties you know it could you know it could lay the smack down and defend its lord, but in fact its lord wants it to do something else
2: right, and this is one of those places where you know people who offer an account of this poem as simple syncretism. Uh, mm. You know, this is Jesus dressed up in chain mail, in other words. Um, I think miss one of the central and radical structural changes to the Anglo-Saxon hero's tale. Uh, here, you know, I mean, the tree has to resist actively the responsibility that a liege man has to enter into combat in behalf of the Lord. Mm. You know, here, you know, um, in a very straightforward sense, you know, I mean, when the lord is pierced in the presence of the tree and then when the tree itself is pierced with arrows the duty of the tree is not to strike back but to turn the other leaf
0: <laughs> <laughs> right to to follow the the lead of its of the mighty king the lord of the heavens precisely um other things to note i mean you you um i think you said earlier that you know, maybe this is a special tree, mm-hmm. but I don't know um, because after <laughs> the uh, after the crucifixion, if you go to line seventy, yeah, um, after the crucifixion and then the Lord of Victories, which is amazing, we'll get to that, I imagine. Um, in line seventy, Christ has been buried, and then it says, nevertheless, we stood in a fixed position, weeping for a while. After the voice of the warriors went up. Ah, okay. So okay. even after Jesus mourners have left, the crosses remain. I, mm-hmm. I I I can only imagine that's who the we are. Yeah. So it's not it's not just the rude, it's the ones that are with the rude flanking him, the, the crosses mm-hmm. of the thieves. And so all of these crosses are are weeping. And then they're all cut down together and they're all buried together.
1: hmm
0: You know, so and then, and that really, you know, plays into line 155 when Christ is on the cross and it says, all of creation wept, they lamented the king's death, you know, and that's, that's a very, very close, very, very close uh, rendering. All creation wept, wept mm. al all the shaped things, all the made things, and remember, you know, Cadman's hymn listeners, you know, Shipund, you right. know, uh Halle Shipund, the holy shaper. Well the creation is Yesheft, the, the shaped things, and all shaped things wept. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and the and the, the rude gets to be uh, the 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 the, sp- uh, the special representative of the whole created order that seems to know what's going on even though humans who are out of tune don't
2: right right it's very boethian in that respect
0: yeah yeah so the this is a this is a created order in which the fallenness seems to be mainly located in humans Mm -hmm. and and every other created thing gets it (laughs) (laughs) except us
3: right right
0: well, we've we've uh, hinted at this, so I think we should uh, proceed into unpacking some of it. How is this passion narrative retold and recharacterized? And and you've already kind of tipped your hat that you don't think this is just syncretism.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's not a a simple syncretism, and you know, I, I guess you know when. When I first encountered this poem as an undergrad, you know, when I read the secondary literature on it, some of them, I mean, basically treated it like a God's Gym t-shirt where, you know, Jesus was just the Anglo-Saxon muscle man, uh, you know, (laughs) who says, you know, first I'll bench press the cross a few times and then I'll just climb up on it since no one's man enough to put me on it.
3: Ooh, yeah.
1: Uh, You know, it's uh, (laughs) a...
0: (laughs) Okay, is that the the macho man, Randy Savage? uh, Uh, Yes, precisely. (laughs)
1: Uh,
2: Whereas, you know, what's going on here is uh, certainly uh, Christ in this is the agent. But, I mean, that's not something that is unprecedented before you get to medieval England. I mean, if you look at the Gospel of John, uh, there is never a moment in the way that John tells the story where Jesus is not absolutely in control. Uh, you know, my my time has not come, he says, so many times before entering into Jerusalem and speaking to the crowd of Greeks. Um, and then, you know, famously in the garden, and, you know, the, uh, actually one of my colleagues at Emmanuel drew my attention to this because he actually has his Bible intro students uh, write brief skits based on the Gospel of Luke's version of the Passion and then John's version of the Passion. Uh, In Luke's version, you know, Jesus is genuinely tormented. He prays, you know, uh, let this cup be taken from me, but not my will, but yours be done, so on and so forth. Uh, You know, he prays so fervently that drops as of blood uh, flow from him. In John, uh, he basically goes into the garden and, you know, when his disciples, you know, object to the fact that he's about to be carried off, he says, what, didn't you realize this was supposed to happen? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's a, I, I would say, you know, it is certainly one that is appropriating the vocabulary of Anglo-Saxon hero tales, but mm. the central idea of it uh, isn't that far away from the Gospel of John. So, you know, it's it's one of those where, you know, certainly it's, it's privileging one of the four Gospels over the other three. I, I don't have any problem saying that. Uh, but it 's something where I think there's a lot more harmony with the old you know aramaic Greek Mediterranean narrative than sometimes people give it credit for um mm. uh, David i mean i'm probably underselling the syncretism here, so m- make the opposite case here
0: <laughs> well uh, if i if I was to make the opposite case we've we've already talked about the relationship of creation to its creator as as Pretty clearly modeled on that of of uh anglo saxon lord liegeman relationship um, but also uh also things like I saw the uh I saw mankind's lord all right Freyan Uh there's that that Freya al mikdi from uh, Cadman's hymn um, hastening with great zeal because he wished to climb me. There, there appears to be no one with him. He's just he's just charging the cross.
2: Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah, there, stri- there's
2: a, there's a brief mention of Feondus, but I mean they are not by any means holding Jesus prisoner.
0: Yes, and 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 I I, I, I am persuaded by your your invocation of John. With um, is, is is it John where where Christ is saying things like. Um, you know, if if this wasn't meant to be, if this wasn't Plan A, uh, there's nothing you guys could do to hold me.
2: Yeah, precisely, precisely.
0: Yeah, uh, so th- th- that that seems to be the version that that this cross uh, sees. Um, in line 39, Christ is is called the the young uh the young, the young, haloth, uh, haloth, mm-hmm. uh, the young uh It's it's a fairly standard. Uh, old english word the halleth uh, for a young warrior
1: mm-hmm.
0: um one of those many old English words that can mean man or warrior it means a little bit of both uh, and often is translated as hero. the young hero uh comes to the cross that was god almighty mm-hmm. uh he's he's strong he's resolute and he uh he or ungeared himself he he ungeared himself
2: right uh, right so he, in other words the roman soldiers didn't strip christ he said well <laughs> if i'm going to get up on the cross i shouldn't be wearing my chainmail."
0: yes he strips himself <laughs> which which, um, which makes me think of beowulf it oh makes yeah me think, yeah you know, it makes me think of beowulf uh, going to fight grendel saying I'm gonna lay down my arms. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna wrestle that guy, man, to man.
2: Right. And then you also, know. I mean, the in my view, and I'm sure it wasn't written to be hilarious, but in my view, the most hilarious scene in the uh, the Junius book uh, Exodus poem, where you know Moses goes off to part the Red Sea, and mm-hmm. the armies of Egypt are advancing, and the Hebrews get a little nervous, so they all don their chainmail and put up a shield wall. And they're going to they're going to stand toe to toe and fight the Egyptians, and Moses has to come back and say, no, 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 we do, we, we don't fight the Egyptians. We cross the Red Sea at this point.
0: Yes, it's 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 awesome. Um,
2: <laughs> yes, I mean, if you can imagine, you know, uh, you know, Charlton Heston coming back and you know finding a whole bunch of people in chainmail with their swords drawn.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like the Vikings, and you're like, huh. When I left, you guys were Hebrews. Yeah. (laughs) But now, what happened? Um, Well, what happened is an Anglo-Saxon poet. Um,
2: What happened is awesome.
0: (laughs) Yes. Uh, He ascended, um, He He ascended onto the high gallows. Mm -hmm. So Christ is climbing the cross. The, the cross is already erected right mm-hmm. So that that seems to be you know the idea is that the cross is already there and Christ is coming to it and climbing it like a tree. Um, brave in the sight of many Modig on Um brave in the sight of many, brave in the sight of all um, because he wished to redeem, to release, to to lease. Um, mankind, and then the cross says, I trembled when, Se Beorn, when the Beorn, when the man, Mm -hmm. uh, embraced me, Beorn, all right? It's a bear cognate, um, which, you know, there's a reason why Beorn in The Hobbit turns into a bear. Yeah. Um. But that's what Christ is at this moment as he embraces the cross. And I think you you need to think not just of a hug, but think of a grapple. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You know, that here you've got the stripped down for combat young hero ascending the cross and then getting a grip on it. And he's not going to let go until he's won. It's it's yeah, it's it's radically different from. What everyone else sees in the Gospels,
3: right, right.
0: <laughs> um, let's see. Any other any other points in this passion narrative that we want to highlight?
2: Well, I mean, I you know we're kind of heading towards the close here, so I do want to turn towards. I mean, this idea of what salvation means in this poem, right? Yeah,
1: uh, yeah, yeah.
2: You know, it's one of those things where. Uh first of all, like I said, and, and you know, I finally found the passage here, um along about line ninety. Uh, and I believe yeah, this is the tree talking, right? Uh Matha mm-hmm. Ye Eldor over Hail von So, you know, behold, you know, the the elder let's see here. Yeah 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 okay okay so you know hey, often reach us where you know the the guardian of heaven has made me the high elder over all the woods right Yeah. <laughs> and then you know just in case that wasn't enough the next you know the next line reads swilcha hey his molder aok marian sulfa almighty god for el amen ywehothoda over el wefachin so i mean that you know uh, just in case you're thinking, okay, that's a little bit weird, you know, that this is the highest of all trees. He says, oh, no, 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 it's even more. Just as the Holy Virgin is the highest of all women.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, you know, I mean, wow. this is a medieval Mariology, you know, which, of course, you know, our own evangelical college students find a little bit objectionable. Uh, <laughs> but then our tree says, but let's do an analogy. Just as Mary is elevated above women, so I am elevated above trees. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the, the idea of salvation here, uh, is that, you know, this tree who has come to the man in a vision, uh, imparts to him this narrative so that if the man faithfully tells the story of the tree, the story of the tree itself, because it is connected to Christ, can itself bring salvation to those who hear. Mm. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where, you know, again, if, uh, you know, the medieval uh, notion of saints as, you know, a, as mediators of sorts uh, that can bring people to Christ um, makes you a bit uncomfortable, uh, this just raised the bet on you.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I, which, which I, I don't know. C- certainly there's veneration of Holy Cross.
2: Oh, certainly, yeah, yeah.
0: In the in in the Middle Ages, but I've never seen any other before this, after this, alongside this. I've never seen any other depiction of the cross that's exactly like this, which makes me wonder whether it's it's in some sense a, uh, oh, what's the word, metonymy, synecdoche, whichever of those it is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> where where the the cross is speaking of itself as a kind of proxy of of the gospel itself
2: oh certainly and I, and I don't i don't mean to indicate that this is you know any sort of simple-minded idolatry but it does seem to be that you know the saving power of christ is mediated through the cross
0: oh yeah 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 um well and he, he goes on after 95 mm-hmm. uh to say, I command you, beloved warrior, that you tell this vision to men. This is commissioning. Reveal in words that it is the tree of glory on which the Almighty suffered, on which Almighty God suffered for mankind's many sins and Adam's deeds of old. He tasted death there. However, the Lord arose again to help men with his great power. Then he ascended into heaven, and hither again the Lord himself will set out into this world to seek mankind on the day of judgment. mm mm-hmm. So it gets very um you know it it the 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 tree goes off into basically commissioning him to to do a kind of creedal declaration um right. you know who you know Jesus Christ who for us and our salvation was made man suffered died buried rose again ascended on high and one day will come to judge the living and the dead Mhm um so for for all of its weirdness, there is there is a connection in the cross's message back to um, the sorts of things that I imagine this narrator would have would have learned in catechism. Mm-hmm. Do, do we want to do we want to end as the poet does and as all things do with eschatology?
2: Yeah, certainly. <laughs> I mean, you know, the <laughs> I, I, again one of the fascinating things here is that you know, you do have a, a fairly straightforward vision of, you know, the, the completeness, the fulfillment of the kingdom. Uh, mm-hmm. But once again, um, and, and it's one of those things that, you know, whenever I teach this poem and certainly whenever I read it in a context like this, it challenges me to articulate what it is that makes me so uncomfortable with it. And mm-hmm. I, I, I sort of tipped my hat to this at the beginning, but, you know... Because I think of the cross as a chapter in the salvation history of the world, I think of it as being overcome, right? You know, I guess if the, uh, if the apocalypse, the, oh gosh, David, I'm going to get it wrong. So I'm just going to say either the 21st or the 22nd chapter uh, <laughs> uh, says that, you know, in the new Jerusalem, there will be no temple, then mm. a fortiori, I have to imagine that there also won't be any crosses, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, yeah. But, you know, this this vision of things, uh, in some ways, I mean, reminds me of, you know, Origen's very controversial statement that everyone disagrees about how to interpret, that, you know, in the end, all things will be redeemed, even the satanic, right? Mm. Um, here, I mean, you've got the cross, which is, you could argue, in the New Testament, you know, the physical wooden manifestation of satanic power right you know it is the instrument by which humankind kills the son of god Mm. Uh, and yet in this poem i mean it is part of the eschatological vision of the kingdom come in its fullness you know it is a jeweled cross it is brought in its glory and it is part of the picture so like i said it makes me very uncomfortable that said i'm not sure whether it makes me uncomfortable because i'm getting it right or whether it's getting it right and i can't grab onto that yet
0: <laughs> well i i think the 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 poem is suggesting that you can look at it you can look at it from two different directions mm-hmm. um clearly the the found us the enemies of the you know the enemies of the lord of this young hero want, you know, erect this tree as an instrument of torture. It's very clear in the poem that oh, yeah, that, yeah. that they have their that they have their agenda. But the young hero has his agenda too. Mm. And so the glory of the cross um in the poem stems stems from the rood's role in in the young hero's agenda, not not from its role in the Fandus agenda. Right. And the root and the rood, which is simultaneously this instrument of torture and this living part of creation seems to know both sides of that story.
3: Right, right.
0: <laughs> Which is really, really interesting. Um, I, I wanted to point out in terms of the eschatology, the um, what last judgment looks like um, from the Rudes perspective. Uh, he calls all humanity before him, he who has the power of judgment. Mm -hmm. Um, This is uh, after line 105. He will sentence each one just as he has earned for himself here in this temporary life. Nor can there be any unafraid there because of the words which the Lord shall say. He shall ask before the multitude where the man might be who for the name of the Lord would taste bitter death as he did before on the cross. Mm -hmm. So you know this this idea uh, it, the 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 rude seems to imagine that you know one of the things at stake in the ultimate judgment day is where will who who can stand forth who ha, who can model heroism right as the crucified lord can mm-hmm. that you know that 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 only only he has the uh the worthiness, and I and I wonder, you know, and, and you, you you kept pointing to John's Apocalypse, but you know only only the only the Lamb slain is worthy to take the scroll.
3: Right,
2: right. And again, in case you're tempted, listeners, to think of this as you know just a sheer appropriation of you know Anglo-Saxon warrior culture, remember that the letters to the angels of the churches in the Apocalypse repeat the refrain you know blessed is the one who perseveres or blessed is the one who endures so yes. I, again i mean it is both medieval and biblical what we're seeing here
0: yeah and um you know as we're as we're kind of heading for uh heading for the door because i know you need to go teach i do indeed um uh when i i, I when i've taught this before um I have a. I, I've occasionally had had students um, actually move to tears over this particular poem, mm-hmm. in uh, in in some of the ways that it uh, takes. Um, you know, and and, and these <clears throat> and these are students who are Christians. These are students who profess faith in you know the Lord who hung on this tree, and but but at the same time that story can often be told so often in the same way that that uh, listeners can become inoculated to it in 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 a, in a way so that seeing it from a different angle um uh in some sense made, made it made it fresh and got past those um calluses of familiarity so to speak mm mm-hmm. Well, anything else uh, that we want to note, comment on, uh, recommend to our listeners before we uh, say goodbye?
2: I'm going to defer the last word to you just because I do need to get on the road.
0: Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, my only recommendation, listeners, is is read it and let us know what you think. Um, I, I read this poem pretty regularly around this time of year. Uh, it's it's book it. It in the St. Matthew Passion and some other um, pieces of Christian art throughout uh, church history have become part of my own reflection um, during the, uh, the season of Lent leading up to the Passion Week. And so I, I recommend it for that reason. Well, in the meanwhile, uh, I, can't, uh, I can't tell you what's happening next week because Michael will be at the helm, and right now Michael is on a boat. So so you will have to wait with us um, for the revelation of that great mystery next week. Uh, in the meanwhile, uh, I'm David Grubbs, wishing you a grand week on behalf of myself and Nathan Gilmore. Uh, this has been an episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast, a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, who inspired this episode. Thanks, Kristen. Our intern is Zach Schmidt, and I'll leave you with the words of Luther to let your sin be strong and your faith stronger.